Our lives make a difference to the degree that we lay them down for Jesus. Our lives make a difference to the degree that we say, I wanna be completely yours, God. Our lives make a difference to the degree that we say, everything that's happened to me, everything that's gonna happen to me is for your glory. We all are called to live a life of purpose and a life of impact, but that doesn't come by elevating our own, our own lives, it comes by laying down our own lives. It comes by exalting Jesus. Welcome to the Resurgence Messages Podcast. We gather and minister regularly for the purpose of reaching people, reviving churches, and releasing leaders. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you to arise for the kingdom of God. For more information on the ministry of Resurgence and how you can take part, check out liveresurgence.com. Amen. All right. So I don't know about you guys. How many of you guys like the show The Office? My wife and I just finished watching the entire office. We binge watched it, which for us is like half an episode a night because we have two kids under five. So it's like binge watching for us is like, oh, we can watch this over the course of like a year. Yeah. And so I don't know about you, but like they, around season three or four, they get to these shots of Jim and he's just so bored in his job. <laughs> he's just like, why am I here? What am I doing? We all know it's really just for Pam, but the reality is he, he just, he doesn't understand the purpose to what he's doing. And uh, somebody shared a meme yesterday from the office, and, and it, it, I thought it was hilarious, but it's Dwight, and he's being interviewed, and he says, I am the most loyal employee that Dunder Mifflin has. He says, and sometimes they even pay me for my loyalty. And then they go to a cut of Dwight printing his resume in a, in a printer, and Dwight says, um, loyalty is one of my strengths, but I will be most loyal to whoever pays me the most. <laughs> so if someone's willing to pay me more for my loyalty, I will go work for them instead. <laughs> And I was thinking about that, and I'm like, how easy is it for us to just kind of do what we do and go through the motions, and uh, we just put our loyalty basically where we feel like we get the most reward, whatever it may be. How many of us feel like we want to live a life of significance, but we're stuck living in this dead-end job like Jim? Um, I think it's pretty easy to feel that way. And um, I wasn't going to share my testimony tonight, but during prayer, I felt like I was supposed to. And then Tysa felt like, literally, she said, the Lord said, you need to share your testimony. Or like, and so I feel like there's parts of my story that I need to share tonight with you all. So I'm going to share that and then we're going to hop into God's word. But uh, I've shared a little bit of my testimony before. So this may be, you may have heard some of this before, some of you that have been part of Resurgence for a while. But um, basically a big part of my story, this isn't my whole story, but when I was in high school, it was actually almost 20 years ago, which is crazy to think about. I fell off of a 70 foot cliff. Um, how many of you guys have done the Grassy Lakes hike in Canmore? Anyone? So as you all know, there's two, or those of you who've done it know, there's two different ways to get up to Grassy Lakes. There's an easy way, and then there's a hard way. And we decided to do the hard way as a family. And uh, I had done the hike before, so I knew about this lookout. There's a lookout halfway up the, the mountain where on one side you can see the whole city or the whole town of Canmore, and on the other side you can see a waterfall. Those of you who've done that, you recognize this place. So I knew about that, so I had my camera. My, uh, you know, I don't know if it was a disposable camera or whatever at the time. But I ran ahead because I wanted to get a picture of this lookout. And the next thing I know is I woke up in the hospital three days later. I, I lost three days of memory. They're completely gone from my mind. And uh, the first thing I remember is the doctors telling me all that had happened. They're listing off all the different bones that I had broken. So I broke my knee. I broke my hip in two places, three ribs, my skull. I broke um, this wrist this wrist and this elbow had disjointed. So there was a lot basically that happened and that wasn't even the worst of it. The worst was the internal damage, uh, organ damage, potential brain damage, they couldn't know, but it was bad. 
And so in the, in the midst of this, I was, um, I was in the hospital, and my background is that we are, we're people of strong faith. My family is a family of strong faith. We've always believed in the power of God. We've always believed that he's real and that he hears our prayers and that he answers. And so it, we, we never had this major huge crisis of faith. But one of the things that we did do as, a, as, a, as an act of worship is in my hospital room, my mom brought a CD player and we played the song, Blessed Be Your Name, on repeat. We, and we believed that the, the power of the, what that song says, it's out of the book of Job, Blessed Be Your Name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Blessed Be Your Name. And we made that our cry as a family. I know God was doing a lot of other things. Uh, one of the other cool parts of my testimony is that uh, right after my accident happened, when things were not looking very good at all, uh, my parents, uh, a friend of my parents was praying for me, and the Lord told them to open the Bible to Psalm 118, verse 17. And he released that verse over my life, and that verse is, I will not die, but I will live and proclaim the works of the Lord. So he released that, that verse to me at that time, and uh, it, it kind of kept us all through that whole thing because we knew that no matter what was going to happen, God had a plan. He had a purpose. There's good that was going to come out of this. And so um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, we started getting letters. We started getting emails from all across the world. People were praying for me. It's kind of cool because to this day, I still meet people when I travel. Like I was in Florida a couple years ago, and I met a bunch of people that prayed for me. Uh, whenever I go to Calgary, I meet people who prayed for me, like, all over the place. And so the, um, <clears throat> God was answering, and he was hearing those prayers. So the initial diagnosis of, uh, of everything that had happened is basically that they said, you probably won't be able to go back to school this year. They said, your knee, your leg is broken so bad that you won't be able to walk for six months. And for the first six months of walking, you'll need to wear a brace. Uh, they basically said that um, we're not sure the extent of all the damage, but be prepared for this to be the long haul. And uh, God had other plans. We believe, who believes God still heals today? <laughs> and um, the amazing thing is that two weeks to the day of my accident, the doctor said, you are healed enough to go home. Two weeks to the day of the accident. And it, it was so amazing, you guys, because every day the doctors would come in, and my mom would probably tell us better, she's here tonight, but the doctors would be like, we don't understand it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, this literally does not make sense. How is this happening? And so God just kept on answering prayers and accelerating my healing in such profound and incredible ways. And so after I went home, I was home for about a week, and then I started getting the worst migraines that I've ever had in my life. Just horrible migraines. And the, um, the challenge, obviously, was I was still kind of not walking. I still wasn't able to do much. And we went back to the hospital, and they x-rayed my head. They did MRIs, all that stuff. And basically what ended up happening is my orbit bone, which holds your eye in place, had been crushed. <laughs> they were like, it was, it was bad. And they said that part of my uh, sinus had a little hole in it. And so every time I breathed in through my nose, a little tiny bit of air was coming in. And there was a massive pocket of air forming in my brain. And so they said, you need a major brain surgery, and, um, and it has to happen quick. And so I was in the hospital for another four or five days. And what I remember about those days is they were very different from the first two weeks I was in the hospital, because I just sensed God... God's plan in this. He had, he had a purpose in this. And I, and I knew that no matter what, no matter what was going to happen, God, God had already brought me to the point where I was at. And so he was going to continue to lead in this time. And so the, um, the crazy thing is the day before my brain surgery, I went back and got all my broken bones x-rayed. So for time, for timeline, this is four weeks to the day of the accident. 
four weeks to the day of the accident, all my broken bones x-rayed. <laughs> I remember the, uh, the doctor coming into the hospital room and he says, um, well, all of your bones have completely healed. He said, um, we can take all your casts off. And then he said, as soon as you recover from your brain surgery, you can walk again. And I was just like blown away. And, um, and so the next day was my brain surgery. And of all days, my dad reads through the Bible in a year, every year, picks random passages for each day of the year. And the day of my brain surgery, the passage was Psalm 118. <laughs> a reminder to my dad of God's promise over my life that I will not die but live and proclaim what God has done. So the brain surgery itself was long. It was like, a, it was like an eight-hour surgery or about that. But everything, was, everything went well. Everything went as good as it could. Um, one of the things that happened in recovery is that the doctor would come in and he would shine a flashlight in my eye and he'd say, can you see? And I'd be like, yep. He'd be like, are you sure? <laughs> like, yeah, of course I'm sure. I'm not going to lie to you. And, uh, and, and, and what he said is that when they were doing the brain surgery, they saw that not only had part of my sinus been, been compromised, he said part of my optic nerve had been compromised. He said, you shouldn't be able to see out of one of your eyes based on what we just saw when we were doing your brain surgery. And the crazy thing is that since, since then, like a couple of years ago, I saw one of the top eye doctors in the province and they did all these crazy tests on my eyes. And, and what he said to me was that your eyes show zero sign of any head trauma. And, and I don't know if any of you understand that when you have head trauma, the place that it shows is in your eyes. But God has completely healed my eyes. So just an amazing testimony of, of God's goodness. But what I want to share to you about tonight, I wanted to give that story as context uh, not only because it, it helps build faith that God still heals today, it helps build faith that he is real and he's alive and that he moves in response to our prayers, but I also want to share this story because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened in my life since then. Uh, one of the things that people would come and say to me after my accident was, oh, God must have this amazing plan for your life. <laughs> and I think that's a really good thing to say, but the problem is I let that get to my head. And I started thinking, oh yeah, God must have this amazing plan for my life. And in a lot of ways, I let my accident become my identity. How often do we let the pain in our life, and how often do we let those things become our identity, right? And so for a while there, I, um, I, I, I kind of lived out of that place. Like, yeah, I was the guy that fell off the cliff. Like, that's just my, that's who I am, you know? And I get these cool opportunities to share my testimony in different places, and, and, and I had a lot of cool opportunities to lead worship in different places. And, and honestly, like, it led me to a lot of pride, and it led me to a lot of, like, focusing on myself instead of focusing on Jesus, and I remember on my 18th birthday, I was at a worship service, and uh, it was a powerful night. It was actually kind of like Resurgence, but in Vancouver. It was called Worship Invasion, and uh, the worship band came up there, and then they did an altar call. And I don't know about you, but I go forward like every altar call just because I want more of Jesus. And the, and the, uh, the altar call came, and I, I went forward. I don't even remember what the sermon was about. I don't remember what the altar call was about, but uh, the worship band started playing Blessed Be Your Name. And, and I've probably heard the audible voice of God maybe twice in my life, but this is one of those times. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a good thing that he said to me. <laughs> what the Lord said, but it was so loving. It was so him. He said, Donovan, I saved you, and I set you apart for my glory. And he just reminded me, I, I, I'm the one. I'm the one you're living for. And it was a real powerful um, invitation to stop making my accident about myself and stop taking kind of the... the the pride that came out of the fact that I'd survived this and start living for God's glory again. Because what I learned that night, what I learned that night is that um, our lives make a difference. 
to the degree that we lay them down for Jesus. Our lives make a difference to the degree that we say, I want to be completely yours, God. Our lives make a difference to the degree that we say, everything that's happened to me, everything that's going to happen to me is for your glory. And um, I, I wanted to talk about Jim at the beginning because I think that some of us feel like we're stuck. <laughs> some of us feel like we're kind of, what am I doing with my life? What's happening? What, what difference am I making? I think the invitation of Jesus and what I want to share with us tonight is that we all are called to live a life of purpose and a life of impact, but that doesn't come by elevating our own, our own lives. It comes by laying down our own lives. It comes by exalting Jesus. Because one of the amazing things we see in the, in the Gospels is we see Jesus going around and encountering and, and interacting with the healing and moving in amazing ways and interacting with all these different people. He does all these incredible miracles. He does all these amazing things. And, um, and what he does is he says, now it's on you to carry that on, to keep that going, right? These people that are broken, these people that are hurting, just like us, he says, now it's your turn. This is what I was called to do on the earth. Now it's your turn to do that. And again, it's not going to be by striving to be like Jesus out of our own strength. It's going to be by yielding to the Holy Spirit. And so tonight, there's going to be two different invitations. The first is to see ourselves in the people that Jesus ministered to. And the second one is going to see ourselves in the ministry of Jesus. And I believe that tonight, God has something for each one of us through three different stories. And I want to elevate, um, I want to speak highly of and kind of go into some of the amazing things about how Jesus ministered and how he lived his life. Because Jesus' ministry did not make sense to the people that Jesus was ministering to. His ministry did not look like what they expected the Messiah's ministry to look like. Jesus' ministry was very countercultural. Jesus' ministry was, was very different, and you'll see this in a couple different stories that I'm going to share tonight. But um, again, I believe that Jesus want, we want to see ourselves not only in the people that Jesus was ministering to, but also we want to see ourselves in Jesus' own ministry. So the first story that I want to look at tonight comes from Mark chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. But Mark chapter 5, verse 24 through 34. So there's a lot of scripture. So what I'm going to do is kind of read through it and kind of unpack it as we go. So the context of the story is that Jesus has a ruler, a leader, coming and talking to him. This leader says, my daughter is sick. She's going to die. Would you come and pray for her to be healed? And so Jesus says yes to this leader. And so this, the story picks up where Jesus is walking to this leader's house. So Mark chapter 5, 24 to 34. So we went with him and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages or bleeding for 12 years. She'd endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. So just picture this. <laughs> There's a huge crowd of people surrounding Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're, they're going with him to, to, the, to this Jairus was the name of that, that leader's house to pray for the sick daughter. So there's this massive crowd of people. I, I almost think of it like a mosh pit. Like you read through some of the commentaries, it's like people were squished in. Like everyone wanted to be close to Jesus. Everyone wanted to be close to him. Jesus is walking. He's moving along. The crowd is coming in and there's this woman. Now I want us to put ourselves in the, in the, the shoes of this woman. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. That's very significant. Because under Jewish law, if you were bleeding, you were unclean. 
And what that meant is you couldn't go to temple. What that meant is you couldn't touch anyone. You literally were not allowed to touch somebody if you were unclean. What it meant is that she probably, it actually says this, that she had exhausted all of her income. She'd exhausted all of her options to try to find healing for this bleeding and nothing was working. Nothing was working, right? And so what does she do? She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I touch his clothes, I will be made well. Verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Amazing. Amazing. What I want to just think about the faith of that woman. Think about the faith of that woman. What did it take for her to actually go up and touch Jesus? It would have taken a lot. (laughs) Again, she was risking so much by touching Jesus. She was risking so much by touching Jesus. But the story goes on. Uh, Let's go back to verse 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware of the power that had gone forth from him, Jesus turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? So basically, like, there's all these people around. Like, everyone's touching you. (laughs) He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Or that, sorry, the story goes on. Let's just end at verse 34 for now. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus heals this woman, and then he says, who touched me? I think about that story, and I think there's all these different people around Jesus. There's so many people that are in his proximity, but there's only one person who had the faith for healing in that moment. There's only one person who was willing to risk everything for a touch from Jesus. There's only one person who said, I I don't care anymore. I'm so desperate to be healed that, that I'm gonna take this risk and reach out and touch him. Again, many people were touching him, but only one was healed. And I believe that's because of the faith that she had in the healing power of Jesus. The desperation that she had for a touch from him. So it says that, that, that when Jesus was asking who touched me, she was afraid. She was afraid and she fell down at his feet. But the amazing thing is that Jesus meets her in her fear. How many of us are sometimes afraid to come to Jesus? This woman's story, it it lets us know that no matter what, no matter what we're feeling, no matter what fear we may be carrying, Jesus wants to meet us in that fear. He he, he doesn't want us to run away from him. The amazing thing about this woman is she could have just touched him, got her healing, and ran away. But by staying there and by in her fear saying, I'm the one who touched you, by falling at his feet, Jesus meets her in that place of fear. And not only does he heal her physically, the Bible uses the word word for healed in verse... um, in verse 29, when it says, she was healed of your disease, the word for healed is the word sozo. And that's healing of body, soul, and spirit. So he didn't just heal her physically, he healed her completely. How desperate are we for a touch of Jesus? Again, there was lots of people in the proximity of Jesus, but only one with the faith to receive what Jesus had to offer. Many touched, only one was healed. 
And so again, Jesus, and the other cool, so that's looking at it from the woman's perspective, but from Jesus' perspective, what's so cool about the story is again, he has been invited by a religious leader, by a ruler, to go and pray for his sick daughter. And so Jesus is on his way from this ruler, uh, he's on his way to this ruler's house, and this woman comes as an interruption. And I don't know about you, but sometimes as a leader, it's easy for me to just get so focused on where I'm going and the tasks that I have at hand that, that it's easy to just blow people off. <laughs> it's easy to just kind of walk by someone because I'm so busy focused on the, what's next. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually stops and he affirms this woman. He speaks to her in a way that, that honors her and lifts her up. And he heals this woman. He actually takes the time to be with her. He didn't, he didn't think, oh, this is just some woman who's been cast off. He says, no, I'm going to actually take the time to be with her and give her what she needs in this moment. And the amazing thing is, Jesus still was able to see the daughter of Jairus get healed. <laughs> and that's the next part of the story. I don't, I don't have it on the slides. But what happens is Jesus goes to the house of Jairus. His daughter has died. But Jesus raises her from the dead. It's just this amazing story of the power of Jesus. And so Jesus is interruptible. People aren't a nuisance to him. He actually restores those who are broken and hurting. That's the way that Jesus lived his life. The next story is from John chapter 4. And uh, there's a lot of theology in the story. I'm not going to get into the theology so much as I want to get into, again, the perspectives of the woman, the perspectives of Jesus. But uh, John chapter 4, we're starting in verse 4, says this. <clears throat> Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he went to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So just to give context again for this story, what's so amazing about this story is that the Jews, so the people that Jesus was a part of, and the Samaritans were like, Huge enemies. <laughs> they were mortal enemies. They did not like each other. They did not agree on theology. They did not, they, they just did not like each other. But Jesus, th that's why I feel like Mark in this, or John in this book said, but they had to go through Samaria. It's almost like, well, they got to go. They, that's the only way they can go. We'll go by our enemies. They had to go that way, so they went that way, right? When, the, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he chooses the Samaritans because the Jews would have known those were the people we're supposed to hate, <laughs> Those are the people we're not supposed to like. But Jesus went to Samaria. He walked through Samaria, and he talked to a Samaritan woman. And um, one of the other amazing things about Jesus is that um, he, turned he turned over the, um, or sorry, the culture of that day, women were, were not treated very well. And so for a rabbi, for a leader to speak to a woman was actually a big deal. But Jesus always was open to that. Jesus, Jesus honored the women that were around him. And he gave them dignity and, and he spoke life to them. He didn't ever just, just ignore them or push them to the side. He honored women. And we see this in, in this chapter. But the story goes on. Let's go from verse 9. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and his sons and flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up 
to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming back here to draw water. And so what's amazing about this is Jesus actually engages with this woman and, and he, he gives her some of the most intense and incredible theology that we see in, in the Bible about the nature of God and how he wants to, to be in relationship to his people and there's more to come. But Jesus doesn't just kind of ask this woman for water and then just ignore her. Jesus actually engages with her. He speaks to her. And as we see as the story goes on, it's a really big deal. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered her, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but they say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is coming, or salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What an amazing teaching that Jesus gives. Again, it's to this Samaritan woman. This is one of the most like quoted verses in the entire Bible. And when you think about it in context, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like he could have said this to the biggest crowd. You'd think this would have been like said to the massive groups of people. No, but he said it to a Samaritan woman because he valued her. Even though he knew that she was living a life of sin, even though he knew that, that she, she wasn't like, she was probably an outcast in the city that she was from too. Everyone probably was aware of, of her life and her decisions and the way that she'd lived her life. It'd be like, why is Jesus talking to that woman? Well, not only is he talking to her, he's restoring dignity to her. He is, he is teaching her some of this incredible truth about who he is. And I believe that it's because a revelation of Jesus changes us. A revelation of who Jesus is, the plan and the purposes of Jesus changes us. This woman, probably, her, probably a lot of her identity was caught up in the sin that she had. But Jesus has a conversation with her, and her life is transformed from that moment on. We see this as the, the story goes on. Let's go to verse 27. Or sorry, verse, so sorry, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah, the one who is speaking to you. Just then the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking to a woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking to her? Then the woman left the water jar, went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. And we see this in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. So not only was this woman restored, she became an evangelist and she led a whole city to Jesus. She set the, pay, she set the stage for the Messiah because he had prophesied life and spoke life in her because a revelation of Jesus transformed her life. And, and I bet you the people of that town said, this can't be the same woman who just went to the well because she's not identifying with her sin anymore. She's identifying with this man, Jesus Christ. And the Messiah inside of her and, and Jesus' word inside of her and the truth, the revelation of who Jesus was transformed her life. Yes. 
And she had a message. She had a word. And, and let's, let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes of this woman. I don't know if some of us feel like we're disqualified. I don't know if some of us feel like the things that we've done in our life have made it so that we can't live up to what God's calling us to do. I don't know about you, but that was part of my testimony. When people said, God must have this amazing plan for your life, the first thing that would come to my mind is, how could you say that? You don't know the stuff that I've done. You don't know the stuff that I struggle with. You don't know how, how, I, how I do this, this or that. Like, that was what would come to my mind. Because I, I didn't allow the revelation of how Jesus saw me to define me. I allowed my own insecurity and my own fear and my own sin to define me. And so I went through actual years and years of, of seeking out emotional health. And I did that through all the different means. Through, through seeing doctors, psychologists, through, through counseling, through healing prayer. All these different things. But the God gradually over time set me free from that negative way of thinking. Because I believe God can change us in a moment. He can also change us in a process. And I believe it's both. And I believe if God releases a healing in you tonight, it's not just about that healing. It's about walking it out. It's about getting to the roots and letting the Holy Spirit speak to and draw out the stuff in our life that would keep us back from the fullness of the life that he has for us. And so a conversation with Jesus, the revelation of Jesus can pull us out of, of an identity of sin. And it can release us into our calling. And this really happened for me one day while I was, pr I was on a prayer walk. And um, my prayer walks used to be like really negative. Like I used to walk around like, Jesus, like I need you more. Like help me stop sinning. Like my prayers would always be so focused on like, I need to be better. Like help me be better, God. And then the Lord said to me, why do you keep asking me for what you already have? And then he reminded me of all the passages in this book that say, who I am in Christ, that say you are seated with him in heavenly places, that say you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, that say my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And out of that revelation, God started to turn aside, to turn my mental health into, different, into a positive direction because of the revelation of Jesus. And so again, some of us might relate to this Samaritan woman where we feel like we could, we don't even, we're not even worthy of a conversation with, with Jesus. But Jesus wants to have that conversation with you. Right. Receive his grace today. I feel like there's some of you in this room that, that, that even struggled with something yesterday. And you're like, how, the, how, how does God see me? What does he see me? He, he wants you to know he doesn't see you as your sin. He's calling you to more. He's calling you to more. The conversation with Jesus changes everything. You are not disqualified. I love that she became an evangelist too. How many of us think like we need to be at a certain point before we can do evangelism? <laughs> I think there's definitely, I think we get to this point where it's like, I can't necessarily share my faith unless I've got everything perfect in my life. Like evangelism is really just pointing people to Jesus. It's one person in need telling another person in need where to find bread. Like it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Evangelism is just saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done in my life. And, and telling people about that. We don't need to, like, be perfect. This woman was definitely not perfect. <laughs> but I think the people saw how changed she was. They saw her demeanor changed. They saw how she looked changed. And they said, this Jesus guy, he's legit. He's for real. And so that's her perspective from Jesus' perspective. How do we treat those people in our life that are walking through difficult times? Do we write them off? Do we think they're not worth a conversation with them? From Jesus' perspective, how do we 
speak truth and speak love to people. What I love about how Jesus interacted with this woman is he did call out her sin. He called out her sin. But he also, he also did it in such a loving way. How do we interact with people? And are we willing to interact with people that, that the world should say we should hate? Are we willing to interact with people that, that the world would say that, that no, that, like, we need to stay away from them? Um, somebody shared this on Facebook recently, but, and it was really thought-provoking, but it, it said that Jesus hung out with sinners, but he never became a sinner. Right. Sinners became like Jesus when they hung out with him. Yeah. Are we the type of people that are willing to go and have relationship and build real relationship and have real conversations and, and, and real life with people who are far from God. People that the world says we should hate because Jesus would. Jesus did. Again, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. That's why I, I hang out with sinners. And again, Jesus didn't become a sinner because he hung out with them. And that's kind of a bridge to the last story that I wanted to share. And this is from um, Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Verses 1 to 4, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So again, to understand this story, it's important to understand the context of what's happening. So there's pretty much nothing worse in, uh, in the New Testament times in Jesus' day than, than being a leper. It was pretty much the worst thing you could be. They were like the lowest of the low on the societal totem pole. Um, and some of it had to do with just how contagious it was. Like leprosy, like, leprosy was kind of like a term that was an um, overall term for all sorts of different skin diseases back in that day. Like, they didn't understand the full extent of skin diseases back then. And so leprosy was just the, a word that could mean all sorts of different ones, but any visible kind of like, um, uh, really, any visible or contagious skin disease was considered leprosy. And once you were diagnosed with leprosy, basically the rest of your life was, was kind of just spelled out for you. Essentially, you had to separate yourself from the city. You, you had to live in a leper colony away from the rest of the people with other people with leprosy. If you ever had to go into the city to buy anything or, or to do anything, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went so that people would know to stay away from you. You literally, they had to cover their heads and they had to yell, unclean, unclean. And you can just picture like somebody walking like that and everybody just scattering away. Like that was the life that the lepers had. And uh, another thing that was with leprosy is that you could not touch somebody with leprosy. Because throughout the Bible, we see this idea of being clean and unclean is very important. And so if somebody was unclean, you couldn't touch them because you would be made unclean too. And so in Leviticus chapter 22, it actually says that if somebody with leprosy comes in contact with another person, both of them are made unclean. And for a period of time, this person had to separate themselves, the one who touched the leper. Not, not the leper, the one who touched had to separate himself and go be somewhere else apart from people because now they were unclean too. 
And so I picture this man walking towards Jesus. Jesus is probably the only one that's there because everyone else is scattered away. He's probably the only one that's, that's anywhere near this guy. And he says, Lord, if you choose, make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. I don't think Jesus had to touch the guy to heal him. <laughs> Jesus could have just said, be made clean, and he would have been healed. But Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. Because when the clean, when Jesus clean comes in contact with the unclean, Jesus isn't made unclean. The unclean person is made clean. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of Jesus. He, he, he carries so much authority and he carries so much power that when he interacts with this man with leprosy, he doesn't just heal him by saying, be healed. He actually touches him. This man who probably has not had physical contact with any other human for years. Jesus touches him. One touch from Jesus can change everything. One touch from Jesus can change everything. And he is willing and he wants those who need a touch from him today, he wants to give you that today. He wants to come and heal you. He wants to meet you in your pain. He wants to meet you in your loneliness. One touch from Jesus can change everything. Jesus flips the script wherever he goes. <laughs> wherever he goes, there's expectations of what a Messiah should do. Jesus often does the exact opposite thing. He goes into places and he models love. He models humility. He listens, he hears, he affirms, he honors. Jesus, the way that he lived his life was so amazing. And so again, if we put ourselves in Jesus' feet in this situation, are we willing to go to places where there's unclean people? Are we willing to, to, to go to places where, um, <clears throat> where people are, are very desperate? the people who, who need more than anything else to know his love? Are we willing to love people like Jesus did? Where I kind of want to land the plane, and Karis, you can come up and play a bit if you want. Um, there's a couple of verses that I want to give us because I, like I said, I kind of wanted to give us two invitations. The first is to, to see ourselves in the feet of those who uh, Jesus ministered to, but I also wanted to see ourselves as those who live out and continue out the ministry and the work of Jesus. John chapter 14, Jesus said, it's an amazing verse, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do we really believe that? <laughs> do we really believe that, that the works of Jesus, the healing that he brought, the way that he lived his life, that's what we're called into? That's the life that he invites us into as his followers? Do we really believe that greater works than what Jesus did, we can do? Uh, if we doubt that, if we doubt that that sort of thing can still happen, just look at the book of Acts. Like, the stuff that happened in the book of Acts was crazy. People were getting healed just by walking by the apostle Peter. Like, Peter's shadow would come over a sick person and they would get healed. Like, that's pretty cool. That's a greater work. Like, you saw the early church, all these amazing things happen. Like, it, it continued on after Jesus ascended. We, do we really believe that? 
Because in Acts chapter one, when Jesus is commissioning the church before his ascension, what he says to them is that you will be clothed with power from on high. He says, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and in Matthew 28, we see Jesus say to his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus is saying the stuff that you saw me do, now it's your turn. The way that I loved that, that leper, it's your turn now. The way that I, I, I spoke to the woman and saw the bleeding woman healed, it's your turn now. The way that I, I spoke to the woman at the well, it's your turn now. Jesus' ministry does not end with his ascension. Jesus' ministry becomes all of our ministry as his followers after he ascends into heaven and pours out his Holy Spirit. But again, I said this at the beginning, we can't just do this by willing ourselves to be better. <laughs> we can't be like, oh, I'm going to give myself significance just by trying harder to be like Jesus. No, it's all about receiving his Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 11 says this. I love this verse. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Earlier in Romans, we see a verse that says, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us. And so the way that we live out this life that Jesus lived is by receiving the Holy Spirit, is by allowing the Holy Spirit to completely overwhelm us and, and Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit isn't a force, isn't just an idea. Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is the gift of God, the person of God dwelling on the inside of us. It's the very presence of Jesus inside of us, empowering and enabling us to live out the life that he's called us to live. And so if you're hearing all this and you're like, I want to see more healing in my life. I want to see people that I pray for get healed. I want to start to, to have the boldness and confidence to share my faith. My encouragement to you is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and all that takes is asking, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fill me up. I like to think of when we're saved, it's like you take a pitcher and you fill the pitcher or you fill a cup with water. That's like when we're saved, the Bible says we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a seal of our salvation. But I think this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is like taking the cup and putting it in the pitcher. <laughs> Completely immersing ourselves in the person of God. And that's my invitation to some of us tonight. If you've never been prayed for to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, I'd encourage you to come forward. We have an amazing prayer team who would love to pray that for you tonight. Um, who would love to pray that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, that your life would, would be completely yielded and surrender to Him. But some of you tonight may be feeling a lot more like the leper or maybe feeling a lot more like the bleeding woman or maybe feeling a lot more like the woman at the well. And my encouragement to you tonight is if you need a touch from Jesus in that way, don't leave until he's spoken into and provided what you need tonight. Don't leave until he's, he's given you that assurance, that confidence, that healing that you need. And again, it might be in a moment, it might be the start of a process of healing. And again, what's amazing about Jesus in all three of these stories is he didn't just heal them in one way. He didn't just, uh, he didn't just like do one thing for them. He transformed their lives. <laughs> and so some of us might be like just thinking, oh, I just, I just need to get over this one sin or, or I, I just feel broken about this area. But Jesus doesn't just want to impact that area of life. He wants to impact every area of your life. Sometimes we get so focused on one thing we want from him 
It becomes our identity. It becomes like all we're ever asking for. But Jesus says, I want all of you. And I'm going to take all of you and I'm going to infuse your life with significance. Everywhere you go, you're going to carry the presence of Jesus. Uh, There's two more things that I want to share. Some of you that have heard me preach before have heard this. I like to share it because it's so good. But our calling as followers of Jesus is not to be a thermometer. It's to be a thermostat. And what I mean by that is thermometers, all they do is they adjust to the temperature or they just tell you the temperature of a room, right? Like a thermometer, all it does is it says, it's 32 degrees. You know, that's all the thermometer does. A thermostat actually changes the temperature of a room. So if you've got a thermostat and you say it's 32 degrees, but I have air conditioning, so I want it to be 21 degrees. The thermostat actually changes the temperature of a room. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be thermostats, not thermometers, meaning that wherever we go, we don't just adjust to wherever we're at. We change the temperature wherever we're at. We change the temperature of places that we go because we carry Jesus in us. We carry him inside of us. And so when we go into our classrooms, when we go into our places of work, we don't just become like the other people. We don't just become like the sinners in our life. We call out more. We change the temperature. The other, the last story that I want to share is um, the church that I used to work at, the janitor is very prophetic. And, and one day she came into my office and she was just like, Donovan, she says, you are a touchdown point for God's kingdom. I am a touchdown point for God's kingdom. We are touchdown points for God's kingdom. And then she walked out of my office. <laughs> That's just kind of how she is. <laughs> But I just like sat there and I was like, whoa, that's so true. <laughs> like wherever we go, we carry the kingdom of Jesus with us. We carry that with us so that we, we can go into places that would, would feel scary or would feel like we'd be overwhelmed because we carry something greater inside of us. We carry something greater inside of us. And so we're gonna have some time for ministry now. Um, I, I feel like there's two things. Again, if you wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit, if you want to pray, someone to pray for you that you'd be filled, this, please come forward. This, this altar is going to be open for that. We have a great prayer team. But as well, if you're, if you're one of those people more, you just need a touch from Jesus tonight. Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's more emotional. Maybe it's, you need to know his grace over the sin in your life. Come forward. I'm just going to pray, and then um, we'll open up the altar. And I encourage you, just whatever you need tonight, just come and receive it. Jesus is here. His presence is here. As we were praying tonight, we just felt like this prof- th- there's something profound that he wants to do. So let's not miss out on it. So God, I just thank you. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. Actually, let's just stand up. Everyone stand up. We'll be... And I encourage you guys just to put out your hands like you're receiving a gift. Lord, I just pray for each person in this room, Jesus. And I thank you that the same Jesus that we just read about in these stories, the same Jesus that we're talking about, Um, that you are here, you are in our midst, Lord. I thank you that that you are in this place. Your Holy Spirit indwells us. And God, I just thank you that we have this opportunity tonight to encounter you because one one touch from you changes everything, Lord. And, And so I just pray right now, God, if anyone is in this room needing that touch from you, that they would receive it tonight. Lord God, I... I just feel like there's some of us in this room that are like that, that bleeding woman. We're just so desperate. We just, we just need that healing. We just need that. Lord God, may we have the faith tonight to receive what you want to give us. I don't just want to be like a person who is in your proximity, Lord God, one of those people in the crowd. 
Lord, I want to be like that woman who, who, who risked everything for a touch from you. God, that's the kind of faith I want. I felt like earlier when we were praying, God, for, for tonight, I just felt to pray, Lord, do what you will. Lord God, be, I just pray, Jesus, that you would be faithful to your word tonight. Lord God, be faithful to your word tonight in encountering us and transforming us. God, because we want to see our lives reflect the greater things that you've called us to. I don't just want to be like Jim in the office, just kind of checking out at the end of the day, going through, going, giving my time. I want to be someone who, who, who has a life of significance, but not because I'm working harder or trying harder, because your spirit is transforming me, because your spirit is alive in me, because I carry your presence. So Jesus, we just invite your ministry now. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. We hope that you were blessed. For more information about Resurgence, including how you can take part of this great movement, visit www.liveresurgence.com.